0: Hello, my name is Cassie Prolongo, and I'm a science communicator at the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute. Today, I'm interviewing Egle Checanaviciucci. Egle is a principal investigator and research scientist in the Radiation Biophysics Laboratory at the NASA Ames Research Center. She's also one of the course directors for STAR, which is an acronym for Spaceflight Technologies, Application, and Research. It's an intensive training course that trains the investigators working in space biology, preparing them for space flight experiments. So, hi, Aglay, and welcome. Hello. Thank you very much for
1: inviting me to be part of this program.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad to have you here. So, Agle, I thought we could start with talking about your research at Ames. What cool things are you working on in space biosciences? Okay, absolutely. So
1: Primarily, we are studying how deep space radiation of the type that astronauts will experience uh, during their uh, flights to the moon and to Mars affects the nervous system, so the brain. Uh, So far, all the information that we have about the effects of space radiation on the brain comes from animal models because we don't have lunar and Mars missions yet. So instead, we imitate it on ground and we expose rats or mice or cell cultures to that kind of radiation and study what happens. What tends to happen in animal models is uh, inflammation, um, damage of brain cells called neurons, and some cognitive and behavioral deficits. Now, the question is, do human cells and human tissues and human brains, will they react the same way? To answer that question, we set out to build many human brains, organs on a chip, in a high-throughput manner, On the plates that can contain up to 96 little human brains, with even little human brain blood vessels, and expose them to simulated space radiation, and then study what happens. Uh, We have a started to find out that space radiation does affect the permeability of blood vessels and some other aspects of regulation of um, of basically brain health. Uh, And we are strongly looking forward to continuing this research, mostly once uh, COVID pandemic goes away.
0: Wow. So it's, Why is it really important for us to understand what happens to the human body as we start to prepare for space travel? So you were talking about radiation. Is it, well, obviously we've never done anything to this extent before, but what are sort of the long-term implications that we're looking at um, when it comes to preparing for space travel?
1: Okay, so especially the first thing that we should think about is how far the Moon is and how far Mars is, and how long the um, duration of the trip will be there. If a very rough estimate, which is sort of roughly correct, is like imagine the International Space Station is 250 miles ahead, Moon is 250,000 miles. Mars can be up to 250 million miles. If a trip takes up to three years, the exposure to microgravity plus space radiation plus other spaceflight stressors will be very much prolonged and would strongly Mm. affect the astronaut's body. So we need to know what will happen to be able to prepare for it and develop countermeasures to mitigate any kind of adverse effects and also develop biomarkers to quantify the extent of those adverse effects as they are happening. And then also we need to prepare for the fact that astronauts will eventually land and will return to Earth's conditions. And what happens during this reacclimation from spaceflight conditions to Earth conditions is another very interesting uh, uh, field of study.
0: Mm. So does this type of research give us any type of, I guess, in real time society benefits that we can even maybe start to implement here on Earth? Because I know we're looking at These are astronauts, you're doing all these sort of things that are happening from them here on Earth. But can we implement this type of research here as as a, a benefit for society in a sense? I would say very much so, sort of
1: in two ways. The first is there are some type of experiments that are strongly aided by doing them in microgravity. For example, growing organoids, so large scale cellular structures that imitate organs and using human cells, they can imitate human organs, significantly advancing the research. That uh, works much better in microgravity. So already just using, let's say, International Space Station as a lab to grow organoids that can be used to study any number of Earth diseases is already helpful. The second way in which uh, um, space biology can be useful for uh, terrestrial biology is by looking at analogs. So what does space radiation resemble on Earth? And it seems like from sort of preliminary data that it resembles aging. It resembles accelerated aging, which means that whatever we discover by studying responses to simulated deep space radiation first, real deep space radiation eventually, I assume, can then be sort of translated to uh, understanding the processes that underlie normal aging. Um, And perhaps some other diseases, degenerative diseases, possibly neurodegenerative and neuroinflammatory diseases, they can be sort of translated between each other.
0: That's so cool. So, I think I remember reading, were you involved with the microbiome and also looking at um, uh, gut gut biology and everything along those lines too? Is that something that you dealt with?
1: Yes. So I am in general, I study um, neuroinflammation and uh, neuroimmune responses. How is uh, inflammation and, and neuronal damage, brain damage regulated both by the cells that are already in the brain and by the rest of the body, including the gut bacteria, Um, right now I'm focusing these studies on specifically space flight stressors, specifically deep space radiation. But before coming to NASA, I have studied both the regulation of inflammation in the brain by brain cells um, during my PhD, and then um, the regulation again of immune response in a brain disease called multiple sclerosis by the gut microbiome during my Mm. postdoc where I discovered uh, specific bacteria that are associated with um, um, either uh, um, their, their levels, they can be increased uh, in, uh, they're increased in patients with multiple sclerosis and are associated with uh, um, increased inflammation in the cellular model that I constructed as well as mouse models. And uh, the reverse, the, the bacteria that are reduced in patients who have multiple sclerosis and are associated with reduced inflammation in a, cellular models and, and mice.
0: It's just so I, yeah, I, it's one thing that the microbiome is such a fascinating subject area. And it just seems like it's an area that has been vastly, maybe not under research or maybe misunderstood, um, for years. And currently right now I'm actually reading Ed Yong's book. I contain multitudes, um, Ed Yong is a science writer at the Atlantic, And just as a member of the public with obviously a strong interest in in science, it's just really opened my eyes (laughs) to the importance of furthering research and actually looking at the symbiotic relationship that we have with microorganisms. Um, So I'm just curious to ask, do you have any ideas as to why how or how our understanding has really changed over the last decade or so um, or where do you see this research leading to when it comes to maybe helping for maybe treatment or anything in the future? Do you see that going anywhere?
1: All right, so that's a great question.
0: So microbiome is a very new field.
1: Uh, most of our understanding in um, how it's different in um, between health and disease and different human diseases has come basically been discovered, has been developed during the last 10 years as the sequencing techniques have been improving. So we are now much better at knowing which bacteria we have and which genes these bacteria have. So what kind of proteins could they make? So what kind of uh, uh, functions could they have in the gut? Um, and it is uh, very much expanding. It's a very strongly, let's say, ballooning field because um, um, it really touches all the different aspects of health. I mean, I may be particularly interested in the nervous system and the the immune system, but, uh, you know, obviously the digestive system and a lot of the rest of the body can also be affected by the gut microbes. Now, it... uh, it is not something that in most cases, and it's a very strong, very serious digestive disease, it's not going to cure a disease, but it may affect its course, which mm-hmm. in many diseases such as the incurable disease, multiple sclerosis that I studied, is actually very important in terms of the quality of life of the patient. So it's mm-hmm. very much worth studying. And understanding, well, not just which bacteria are different, but what is the important molecule that they're making can really help um, treatments as well, because then you don't need to feed somebody a random bacteria. You just need to find out which molecule that is and then make that molecule and then use it as a pharmaceutical, as a treatment. Um, And really particularly interesting in terms of spaceflight as well, because um, as you can imagine, spacecraft is contained whatever the astronauts bring inside themselves and on themselves and on the walls of the spacecraft will be the microbiome of that system sort of both the inner microbiome right and the environmental microbiome how will the microbes react to uh, spaceflight stressors such as microgravity and radiation how will they react with the, with their hosts in this particular case the astronauts um, how will they be affected by the fact that the host is experiencing microgravity and radiation. Generally, when we experience any kind of stressor that changes our microbes too. Um, And then I guess, finally, how will they interact between like the environment and the host and the host sort of uh, internal microbes and what kind of interchange we'll see, knowing that normally um, on earth, we are constantly exposed to a high variety of microorganisms, but just by you know, living a normal life. Um, and this will not be the case now. Now the whole like community will be somewhat uh, limited based on the community that left the earth. So mm-hmm. it's a very interesting uh, uh, set of questions that people are working on answering. We don't have the answers yet, but it will be um, interesting and important for understanding human health and space.
0: Oh, that's so fascinating. I can't wait to see more and read more about that. Um, I'd love to switch gears a little bit. And actually talking science is, of course, extremely fun and I love doing it. But a story StoryCorps, and I want to talk about your story, too. Um, so growing up, how did you know that you wanted to pursue science? When did you discover that you wanted to be a scientist or that you could do this for your career?
1: So I am one of those kids who always wanted to be scientists. Rather, I always wanted to be an astronaut or more specifically a cosmonaut because when I was born and when I was four and that's when I decided I wanted to be a cosmonaut, I was still in USSR. I am mm-hmm. um, born and raised in Lithuania and it became independent from USSR when I was about six years old. And then from for as long as I remember myself, I was obsessed with any kind of science. I was strongly supported by my family. Both my parents are mathematicians who um, were delighted at doing simple kitchen science experiments um, uh, with me, when I was very little and uh, especially my dad showing me stars and planets and constellations. And that is literally one of my first memories just that I ever have. That obviously precipitated my obsession with space flight and with human space <laughs> exploration. Um, and more um, specifically later, as I learned about different kinds of sciences in school, um, with biology. Mm. I didn't have a problem that I got particularly interested in neuroscience, which was particularly little um, studied compared to a lot of other fields of biology. And it didn't exist in Lithuania as a a field, as I was um, graduating from high school. So that's how I ended up in the U.S.
0: Wow. So where did you study for your your PhD in the the United States? So first,
1: I I came to the U.S. for college. I... um, I very much needed a uh, uh, full financial aid, Roman board included, no loans, because let's um, say family was poor by post-Soviet standards, uh, so I, and I wanted to do neuroscience, which didn't exist in Lithuania. Fortunately, a lot of the um, colleges in the U.S. actually do give full right to international students. So, uh I applied the first round out of grad, out of uh, high school. Uh, didn't get in anywhere with the money that I needed. Took here off, worked as a chemistry teacher, applied again and got into a bunch of places. And then Harvard gave me full ride. And I um, became the, your classic story of coming into the US without <laughs> knowing a single person after my first plane ride in my life <laughs> with the $500 in my pocket, which made me feel very rich. Until I saw the cost of textbooks. And (laughs) then I found a job. (laughs) So that's how I basically ended up here. And uh, then got to um, find, was very, very fortunate to uh, be able to work in a lab, like have a paid job in the lab. And uh, realize that there's nothing else I would like to do. And then um, moved on to uh, um, grad
0: school and sort of the
1: classic scientific career, right? Grad school, postdoc, and then eventually NASA.
0: So how have mentors inspired you or helped you along your journey um, as your career path? Because now you are working at NASA. You're one step away from almost being like an astronaut, in a sense, from that little girl. Um, but how have the mentors that you've worked with really helped inspire you and help you? So I
1: think, and probably every scientist would tell you the same thing, mentors have been essential in um in both inspiring in me sort of uh, the wish to discover things by myself. I've had a wonderful set of mentors from undergrad to grad school to postdoc who really let me try and fail a great deal instead of just like telling me what to do. And uh, well, early on, that was essential in like showing me that I really like science with all the failures and with all the wrong hypotheses. Um And then later, really training me for, well, becoming a mentor, becoming a PI myself. And then another thing that most people really don't talk about is that it really helped me that my very first scientific mentor in undergrad paid me for working in a lab because I needed a job. If not in the lab, I would have had to work doing something else, and I wouldn't have a chance to. time enough to work in a lab and build that experience. And then later I would need to become a competitive applicant to grad school. So basically the only reason I became a scientist, I got the luxury and the privilege to um, go on as a scientist is that somebody took a chance and decided to actually pay me for being a lab research assistant. So it's like freshman year of college. And that's why I strongly advocate doing the same for um, um, all research assistants across our labs.
0: Yeah, funding is always tight for when it comes to science, but it is so important and it really helps to democratize, I think, the science industry by paying people what they're worth, even if it's just starting out, we need to ensure that people are getting paid so that they can continue with science. Mostly to just, as you say, to democratize it, to make sure not to
1: exclude, to make sure that you're not sub-selecting from the students who can afford to do this without being paid. It's not some, and they're not talking about the kind of sums that would break the bank for the lab, really. It's much more about sort of the cultural understanding.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people haven't realized that, but it's, it's. I think it's starting to change. I would like to see it change. Um, personally, maybe it's changed quite a lot in the last decade or so, but yeah. it, it's good to see that that's, cause I know my, one of my first internships that I had, it was all unpaid. Um, I had to work on top of that and going to university. So it, it can be very tricky, I think. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about your involvement with STAR. How did you get involved with this, and what exactly is, do you get to do as one of the course directors for it? Okay, so STAR is the brainchild of Marianne
1: Soa and Lisa Cornell, the other two um, um, directors in the organizing committee, and I am helping them with all the organizational aspects. And basically, the idea is that there are a lot of researchers who would be very interested in doing a. Um, spaceflight experiments or including space biology research and the research they're already doing, but they don't know how to get in the field. Space biology is a very specific field. It requires specific knowledge, specialist knowledge on microgravity, on radiation, and uh, conducting spaceflight experiments. Yet another kind of specialist knowledge about, well, what are the how to make a payload that would actually work, how to plan an experiment that could actually be conducted in orbit, because it will not be the same kind of experiment that could be conducted in a lab. Um, so a way to uh, bridge this gap and uh, would be to have a course that would teach um PIs and advanced researchers and advanced postdocs, so people who would be um, proposing to conduct these experiments, just teach them the basics of um, what is space biology, what kind of questions you can ask, what kind of um, uh, what kind of considerations you should have about flight experiments, and. Um, um, who is there, what is the community that you should know that uh, you can later contact in uh, uh, if you want to stay in the field? So um, that's how STAR was born, that's what it's for. Uh, we were supposed to have an in-person course uh, in mm-hmm. August, which we obviously are not having because of COVID, but we have selected our first cohort, we're having the first meeting in about two weeks. And uh, from then on, we will uh, uh, continue with some uh, online training and seminars and then hope to have the in-person portion of the course so that people could actually really meet each other and interact with each other and plan experiments together um, next spring or summer, again, Mm -hmm. depending on how the pandemic goes.
0: And that's what I was going to ask for my follow up question. How has your work actually shifted since living in this COVID based world? Are you still able to run experiments or has it been more paper writing and getting caught up on submitting proposals and everything along those lines?
1: Right, so it's probably the same thing for everyone. We can do lab experiments, not really. We're doing the the basic mission critical experiments that we really, really need from our previous big irradiation experiments, sort of um just running the samples, processing samples, but that's it, so it's very limited. Fortunately, we are have computational labs, so there's a fair amount of analysis that we and our teams can do. Uh, and also, of course, there's always papers, there's always um, grants, um, there is the uh, upcoming decadal um, survey for which um, it is actually a very good time to sort of sit back and reflect and plan at like a much higher level because when you're running experiments, you don't have time for that. So there are very, very good ways to use this time that we have to spend, um, you know, stuck at home instead of the lab.
0: Could you actually explain what the decadal survey is, just in case nobody's um, heard of it before? Because I know it's very prominent with what we do here at NASA, but it's not something that we use in our normal lexicon in everyday life. <laughs>
1: So basically, every ten years, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, Medicine release guidelines for different parts of NASA, in this case, space biology. Um, in term, and these guidelines, um, show what um, what we should focus on? What kind mm-hmm. of research we should uh, we should plan to perform? Very broadly. Now, in preparation um, for making, creating these guidelines, the academies want white paper, so basically ideas from researchers, both at NASA and outside. Uh, Which means that if you have some idea that you really, really want to pull through, you can Combine forces with researchers at NASA and academia, even in industry, and write a white paper that you then submit to the academies. That then they will pay attention to it while making the plan for uh, um, for the next decade. So it's actually an extremely interesting and fun um, um, thing to uh, to focus on and to think about, and yeah. it really affect our um, uh, our goals or research for quite a while to come.
0: Yeah, once a decade. I mean, it's right kind of a big deal. So for, for people working for NASA, this is definitely a big deal. <laughs> it's You want to look at it and see what it is and what, what submissions we could possibly have and, um, that affects a decade, <laughs> potentially. Even people who don't work for NASA can give suggestions,
1: which is actually mm. really Oh, and that's really important because, you know, we work for NASA and at NASA, but in the end, we work for for the country. We work for everyone, for all the taxpayers. So they should, uh, uh, they have a chance to um,
0: uh, influence it as well. Absolutely. That's a very good, very good call. I want, I have a couple of questions I'd like to ask that might be a little off the wall. Don't be scared or anything, but I'm curious if you have a favorite memory, or maybe a couple of memories, um, perhaps along your journey that you'd like to share? Let's see. I'm trying to think about it. it's a bit of a hard uh,
1: thing to, <laughs> to ask for, because I'm like, well, like my favorite memory at
0: NASA. Sure. <laughs> or, like, anything is there? that's, or about maybe an outreach thing that you've had happen, or anything um, that you had a, a lot of fun or a discovery that you weren't quite prepared to see and you went, oh my gosh, I can't believe this actually happened, like something surprising or exciting or even a favorite mission maybe that you have coming up that you're excited about?
1: Well, I guess I'm have i I've excited about a lot of upcoming missions in that sense. Um, I am very excited I will get to uh, support um a little bit at least, uh, the neuroscience aspect of the upcoming Rodent Research 10 mission. Mm. Um, It will be a particularly cool rodent mission that will um, allow us to study how cells um, divide in the brain in addition to the rest of the body. And that is important for new cells being born, which is essential for, say, memory formation, and also um, for um, the control of inflammation, which, as I mentioned, may be one of the main sort of adverse responses to space flight. So I'm really excited to get a chance to, you know, be part of that mission. Um, I um, I always enjoy being a part of uh, um, any kind of outreach activities. And it's been, um, it definitely felt amazing to say be a, um, at California Academy of Sciences on the other side, on the side of the people who are actually a, uh, doing outreach and talking about space to everyone else. I'm like, I still can't, sometimes can't believe they will come to me to listen <laughs> about space biology, which is uh, truly amazing. And uh, and probably my favorite memories period are um, when I hear about successes from my mentees Mm -hmm. I, we are, um, so in the lab, the lab is collaborative, Um, the other, yeah, I, Sylvain Costas in addition to me, and we are having two of our um, wonderful research associates now go to grad school and get their PhDs, and it's like, these are the most wonderful moments when you see them really go on and succeed with their lives, so like, I think those are the ones that I will remember sort of the most. Mm, so I don't have like, a funny memory, but uh, this is
0: what, <laughs> what
1: comes to mind.
0: <laughs> that's, that's lovely. I love that. So finally, I think it would be remiss for me not to ask you one more incredibly important question. It's probably the most important question. And evidently, you are a Tolkien fan, as am I. Now, are you an avid fantasy or science fiction reader? <laughs> or both? Possibly both. But you know, more fantasy
1: than science fiction. So mm. I, I am an ever Tolkien fan, which is wonderful. I wonder how many more of us are hiding around NASA. <laughs> The only thing he got wrong is that he did not put in enough science and technology development and did not emphasize the wonder of science and technology, which can fit in fantasy worlds too. So um, since the beginning of this COVID pandemic, I have also been, uh, um, you know, we all of a sudden ended up without my commute, so with extra time to sit at home and do other things. Um, So I've been uh, working on some uh, fantasy stories that are much more Uh, technology inclusive and that's uh,
0: interesting
1: for me and highly inspired by you know your worlds like Tolkien's but also my general obsession with science and technology development plus my special obsession with military science and technology which is just like another random thing that I am interested in
0: that's awesome I love it So see, you can have a whole bunch of different people working and doing things at NASA who have an amazing set of skills and also a collection of hobbies and cool things. And I love knowing that there's more Tolkien people who are out there too. It's so much, so much fun. (laughs) It's true. The hobbies are amazing.
1: That's one of the most impressive things about everyone at NASA. It's like everybody's extremely talented and not just at being scientists. That's right. Incredible um, uh, privilege to work with such people.
0: Well, thank you so much, Aglai, for the interview today. Um, You're involved with some amazing and very exciting research. I can't wait to read and hear more about it. And yeah, I'm just going to continue bugging you for more information as things come out. So thank you again. Please do
1: continue bugging me. Thank you very much. This was very fun.